0: Tonight is uh, part, the fifth part of a series that we're calling Revolution Jews and the Great European Revolution. Tonight is the fifth lecture entitled The Great Liberal uh, Revolutions of 1848 to Impact of the Jews. We won't quite get up to that tonight, but that doesn't matter. As they used to say, time marches on. And uh, as you can see, tonight is a joint effort uh, by the Birnbaums, Ken Birnbaum, in honor in memory of his parents, and by the Obersteins, in honor of the children and grandchildren, and by Helen Gottlieb. Remember of his father, Ironman Shlomo Hill, and mother, Pearl Bud Alexander. As always, we rely and uh, grateful for all of our sponsors and for all the tech people who have to patch with so much stuff to make this work. And now, without any further ado, here we go. Uh, when I left you off last time, we are talking about the fact that Napoleon certainly had his issues uh, with the Jews and actually was in the process of rethinking uh, whether the civil rights that were given at least to the Jews of Jewish-Jewish-Jewish Alsace Jewish, Jewish was the right thing or not. But having said that, he didn't really revoke anybody else's rights, and he never even took theirs off exactly. He was just planning or thinking heavily about doing it. So we will never know what would happen if he would have succeeded and won all of his wars and stayed in power, all the rest of it. I personally don't think it would have been so great, but you'll never know. But what if, that's not all the Jews in the world, that's the Jews in France, of which about 40, 50,000 approximately. But what about the rest of the Jews if you didn't live in those years under Napoleon? A lot of Jews that didn't live over there, after all, Jake, do we have a pointer here? He says, after all, if you go to the, to, to the uh, well don't worry about it, let's just go to the next slide. If you lived in other places in Europe, which is where the majority of the Jews obviously lived, think about the Jews in Poland, for example, or Russia, or in uh, Central Europe, or in the, other, in the German states. If you live in those kind of places, during the years of the 1790s after the French Revolution came out, which could not fail to have an impact on them uh, for positive or negative, and then the French Revolution was triumphant. They weren't able to beat them, and if anything, the French are beating you, and Napoleon takes over, and he conquers Europe, or almost all of Europe, uh, and he wins one battle after another to the intense frustration of all the other powers, as you know, and it kept going on and on going and going and going like that. So, so, and we all know that Europe is, uh, France is unusual because they gave the Jews the civil rights, what about if you're one of these guys, right? The uh, Prince Regent of England or the King of Prussia or the Tsar of Russia or the Emperor of Austria. These are his sworn enemies and they fought a hundred battles with him. Um, and they got a lot of Jews, not in England, but in Prussia you have fifty, mm, sixty thousand, 60,000, a couple million, uh, about a million. You know, so that's a lot already. Uh, so these other countries, which are pre-modern in their Jewish policies, in their Jew policies, I should say, uh, you know, they never signed up for the French Revolution. Uh, as far as they're concerned, it's not 1801. It's it's uh, you know 801. You know, it's, it's uh, 1301, 1401. If they can help it, but they watch. They cannot help but watch with fascination from afar as France emancipated its Jews. Like nobody ever thought of doing that. Like look at that. Uh, in Russia, Tsar Alexander I had a Napoleon type attitude towards his Jews, who really were Polish Jews. Um, let me say that uh, there's no such thing as Russian Jewry. Uh, Russia as a country never allowed Jews in for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was strongly opposed to Russian Orthodox Christianity to allow even a single Jew in, unconverted. But then, Russia conquered a lot of territory to the West, which I get, and that means they took over Poland, or almost all Poland, and they got a booby prize at the largest Jewish community in the world. And not only Jews, but I mean Jewish Jews, uh, who's... Who, who's active in Polish Jewry at the time the Russians take over. The Hasidim movement is starting, uh, the Litvox, the whole nine yards. And they're very intensely Jewish. And the Tsar is a Russian. Uh, he had a liberal education, but he's a Russian. And as far as he knows, the question is, like all these guys, how can I use my Jews the best? How do I get the best bang for the buck without them without them uh, taking too much power and things getting out of hand? Which is what Napoleon and the French also thought. How can I un them successfully you see now if he could win he would convert them all, all right, you can't exactly do that not overnight so, so how do we approach this see so as you can see over here well, let's go back let's go back yeah. the uh yeah uh, Michael better the first uh, French Privy Council of Jewish origin issued an appeal to all countries name of the European heavens to the Jewish faith urging that full justice be done to the Jews he's French which appeal included Induced Alexander the Tsar to attempt to ameliorate the condition of his Jewish subjects. So we find in the first decade of the 1800s certain uh, official policies to try to help the Jews. But you got to watch out when you have a European government like a Tsar with an official policy to help the Jews. Uh, he appointed a special commission by a government order in 1802 uh, to draft a set of regulations, which resulted in regulations called Enactments Concerning the Jews of 1804. Now he didn't give the Jews civil rights he appointed a commission of non-Jews to come up with a better policy of how to regulate the Jewish life. Under this enactment, the Jewish-Russian Jews obtained the right to buy and rent land in all the western and southern provinces, which means move out of Poland and move near Odessa and the Black Sea in that area where there's a lot of empty land. They had conquered that land from the Turks, from the Tatars under Catherine the Great. Now we want to move people down there. Nobody's working anyway. Jews ain't farmers. You see, not what they now, some Jews will go and try. And most will be a disaster, because when you do a farm, then you're under a Russian governor general, and it never works out good. Russia has a terrible history with planned farming. That's just who they are. Up to recently, if anybody old enough to remember when Khrushchev tried to do the Virgin Land Territory, you know, they always flop. And uh, if you're a Jewish guy, and you're, you know, a blacksmith living in Vilna, why do you want to go and be a farmer down there? No, it's better for the Jews to be farmers. Then you work the land, you have mancraft. This is all that fantasy junk. They came out of the Enlightenment in which they thought, I know what's better for you. Get out of medical school and go be a farm, you know, like, like, like that. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Under this enactment, they gained the right to buy land, to enter all the elementary and high schools and universities. That's true, but what was the purpose of allowing Jews in 1804 into Russian high schools and universities? Uh, to establish factories in all provinces where they're permitted to dwell. Yeah, they wanted to encourage business, and to visit all the provinces on business on condition that they and their the families adopt a European style of dress, so they might not differ from the natives and outward appearance. So we have the beginnings of a policy of quid pro quo, like you found in Austria, like you found in Germany, and like you find in France. It's never a civil rights, it's that I'll give you 20%, you give me 40%. You know, that, that's how it works over there. Uh, they were promised all the rights and citizens, as soon as they would show diligence and skill in agriculture handicrafts. He even offered the Jews land in the neighborhood of St. Petersburg, Moscow, if they're willing to confine themselves to agricultural pursuits and serve in the Russian army. Uh, this is what you got. And he considered, by the standards of czarist Russia, this was liberal. Which just goes to show you what Russia is. I don't think any of us need to know. I bet you many of you are descended from people that ran away from Russia. Okay? Um, but Eastern European Jewry is not French Jewry. It's much from her. And so these kind of Napoleon type of simulatory tricks uh, on the part of the czarist government don't really work. He didn't get a whole mass of people flocking to Russian schools. He didn't get a whole mass bunch of people flocking to become farmers in the southern provinces, you know, in, like I say, near Odessa and, and, and the Crimea and the Black Sea. He didn't get hundreds of people saying, let me go live near Moscow and become a farmer and uh, be under Russia because I can tell you right now, first thing to do to become a farmer is, I guess, okay, now you've got to join the church. Otherwise, they ain't giving no seed. You know, that's how they do it. There's nothing without cheating over there. That's just the system. There's nothing without cheating. And the number one cheater is the government. That is the history over there, over and over again. And the uh, Jews learned that just like everybody else learned it. You know what I mean? You, 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 you learned it long ago. So uh, I can't say it was a mass movement to go join the Russian public schools back in the time of Alexander I. They did not trust him. Okay? They didn't trust him. And there are a thousand stories about all these uh, Jews and rabbis. You know, we, we can't trust them. So on the one hand, Alexander says, look, I'm doing a Napoleon. But on the other hand, it was a faux Napoleon. Uh, Then there's the neighbor of Russia, the next country over, which is Prussia, which was at that time, at that particular moment before Napoleon, without going through all the details, Prussia had annexed a big chunk of, I mean, a third or so of Poland. Many people don't know that. For a short time, the Prussians, after the uh, partition of 1795, they uh, controlled for about 11 years, 12 years Warsaw and places like that. Which they wanted to Germanize, because uh, they're Prussians, and uh, therefore there are a lot of Jews over here. At the time I'm talking about, Prussia means this whole area, uh, like I say, Warsaw, Central Poland, Western Poland, heavily Jewish, heavily Jewish. There are many uh, towns where the majority is all Jewish. You know, so uh, now it's under the Kingdoms of uh, Prussia. What do you do with that? Um, the Kingdom of Prussia, which was, excuse me, no was important. Uh, German state, uh, Prussian-Austria, two important German states, had a long and weird history of how to deal with the Jews. Without going through too many details, Frederick the de Great, who died not long before in 1786, spent 46 years squeezing the most juice you could possibly get out of your Jews. He really knew how to get the best bang for the buck, and I mean that. He was unbelievably ingenious in squeezing money out of the Jews. Just to give you one example, when you want to get married, first of all, it's not easy to get married. You have to have a special permit. If you want to get married... You have to buy $10,000 worth of china from Frederick the Great's China factory. Now, you can sell it. As a matter of fact, the opposite. Export it. You, you know, you're doing me a favor. But you're, you are buying the china. <laughs> you know, or you're not getting married. You see? That's just a little example of a hundred ways that he did He was really harsh on the Jews. His successor, Frederick William II, wasn't. He was much more a playboy type. And he was easygoing. And he eased up a little bit on the Jews. But he died in 1797, so for most of the Napoleon period, you get this uh, so-and-so, Frederick William III, who was there for a long time, and he was a very conservative and very anti-Semitic king. Very conservative, very anti-Semitic, and pretty much of a loser. Um, And uh, he would, any slightest liberalism that his father showed, he pulled back. And that's just who he was. And so if you're in Prussia, you're living in Berlin, all the rest of it, if your few millionaire families... They have special ties with the government because you provide financial services. That's a separate sphere. Everybody else, 99.99 per house. You can't uh, buy a house without a special permit, which they don't give you. can't get married without a special permit. Only the father can transmit citizenship to one son. All the rest of them can't be citizens. It's a crazy uh, system over there. And, uh, and he wants it. He likes it. He says, if anything, it's too liberal. That's who he was. Now, Prussia was really, pretty, under him, he was particularly maladroit when it came to the Napoleon business, when there were wars that they might have joined and won, they didn't join, and then 1806, uh, they got into a, a tiff with Napoleon over something, because he promised Hanover to Prussia, and then he said, maybe I'll give it to England or something like that, and so he declared, he's an idiot, he declared war on Napoleon, just himself, Prussia, and Napoleon creamed him, In one day, in 1806, two months after the, the, the war started, the French wiped out two Prussian armies on the same day, like 20 to 30 miles apart. Jena and Auerstadt. Jena is a famous university town. Jena, you call it. Jena. And you know, so in other words, one day he creamed the whole Russian Prussian military establishment. They thought that they are, what do you call it, you know, cat's pajamas. They are unbelievable because Frederick the Great won all these victories. Yeah, that's right. It worked in 1750. Get it? In the old system, so we all know the famous story, the Polish cavalry charged the tanks, right? So there was a time when cavalry was good. And then there was a time that it wasn't. So, the same with the Prussian business, the tactics of Frederick the Great back in the middle 1700s, Then were are getting more against Napoleon. And he, he went through him like a knife through butter. And he crushed the uh, Prussian army. Couldn't happen to a nicer people because all this territory they conquered from others. That's all. And uh, the result was that uh, he stripped it. Uh, by the time the, the treaty was done, the king ran away all the way to here. You know, he ran away from Berlin. All the Frederick the Great occupied Berlin took over all the country, and he said like this, I am getting rid of all this junk from Prussia. This is what I'm leaving, just this blue stuff. Okay, And the queen of Prussia came and begged him, and she said, you know, she tried to kiss up to him and all the rest of it, but he knew that she hated him and saw baloney, so uh, basically he said, no way. And uh, Prussia was busted. As a matter of fact, he didn't do, if you want my opinion, he didn't do good enough, he left him this, which enabled them to come back at him. But uh, that's what happened. So Prussia was in bad shape. The old regime The ancien regime in Prussia was now exposed as out of date and dysfunctional. I mean to get told there's a picture I can show you when they declare war. the Prussian officers go to the French embassy and they take their sewers out and they sharpen their sewers on the stone steps of the French embassy. you know and Napoleons like, yeah, yeah keep it up, guys, you know no problem. it's like the samurai, get it, you know charging the marines, keep it up, no problem You see uh, he, he, went, he just uh, wiped them out. And so, even... I mean, look at, look, look at the next picture. There's Napoleon entering Berlin. <laughs> okay? There's Berlin. That's Napoleon. He, he, he dictated the peace from the royal palace. In fact, he went to Frederick the Great's tomb very famously. He says, if he was still here, we would not be here. You know, Fine, but he's not here. <laughs> so let's, so let's, let's hit the road. Uh, so the result was that uh, Prussia was clear that new brooms are needed. Even the king, who was an idiot beyond belief, he also say, you know, we, it's a new day. He didn't like it. He really disliked it, but no choice. And so he appointed young people or experienced people to uh, reform. Charles and now redid the Prussian army. They made it the modern army. That we, they, unfortunately, they did a good job. This is the father of the German army of Hitler, you know, of the Kaiser. They, they fixed the, let's put it this way, they got rid of all the old stuff and they brought in the new. And after they're finished, the German officers are the best. Everybody knows that. I mean, officer for officer, training-wise, German officers are the best. So uh, these guys completely re- reformed the army. And not only the military has to be reformed, but let's go to the next one. Whether the king wanted it or not, they had to reform everything else. The civilian business. They so called Stein and, and, and Hardenberg. These are very famous names in Germany. I can't tell you. And, uh, they said to the king, give us a free hand. He wouldn't give him a free hand, but he said, give us a free hand, and we've got to j- change everything. Uh, modernize all the French revolutions up. Get rid of the guilds. Uh, make the peasants uh, not serfs anymore. Um, you know, give them uh, certain rights. Um, reform the education from top to bottom. This is when the German universities become something. Okay? To so get rid of all the dumb professors and bring only research professors. That's it. That's this is when they reformed the universities. Uh, and everything in life, you know, the, the taxation system, the nobles, and all the rest of it, they really gave it a thorough uh, house cleaning, which means he goes through this, he goes through this, he goes through this, and the king gets, okay, okay, okay. After they went through all these other things, Hardenberg and Stein go to the king and says, okay, we're now up to item 87, the Jews, <laughs> you know, got to do something about that also. That wasn't at the front, but it's there because the Jews are not citizens, they're like resident aliens, they can't, yeah. You know, they got to buy China, they can't do this, they're not allowed to go into this line of business, the, the thousand and one crazy regulations, which a modern country can't have, you got to get clean away all the cobwebs, and the king really doesn't want to do it, he says do I really, really have to <laughs> do I really, really have to do this, and Hardenberg says, yes you do, okay and so, against his will the king had to issue the uh uh, declaration, the Proclamation 1812, in which he said, Jews and dependents dwelling in their own state provided general privileges and so forth are from now on citizens, citizens of Prussia. They weren't citizens until then, right? They made the designation under the following obligation. They have to get German names. They have to uh, use German language in their in their bookkeeping and so on and so forth. So they that quid pro quo business. Within six months, everybody has to go to court and uh, say, this is the name I'm going to keep from now on. And he identified his name, and then after doing his name, the Jew has to receive from the province a, a certificate of, of citizenship that he can go for him and his posterity. They can't even do a Declaration of Rights correctly. You know what I mean? they got to do everything with a thousand rules. Jews who qualify as native child the same civil liberties and, as Christians. Whoa. Whoa. That's a biggie. Okay? Now, he didn't mean it, but he said it. Okay? Uh, Hardenberg meant it. Stein meant it. The king, it was 1812, Napoleon is walking all over the place. They've got to modernize the country as, as a castor oil, you know what I mean? He, he can't take it, right? They can hold any academic teaching at school posts as well. as all are qualified, so all positions are open to Jews, according to this. We reserve the right to determine the extent to which they allow before other uh, 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 public service state functions, you know what that means. We'll revisit this issue in the future. They can settle in the cities in the countryside. That's a biggie. Until now, a Jew, you know, it's like, it's like the mishmar HaSvaid. You you live in this town, you're not allowed to move to another town without special permission and all the rest of it. Um, it was very difficult for people to get permission, for example, to move to Berlin, or to bigger cities. That's classic old school. All the Jewish communities were always a mile or two outside of town. You're never allowed to live in the town. Uh, everywhere. And now he's changing it. They can acquire any kind of real estate. And do trade if they use the regulations. Freedom of trade say also of commerce. These are very important. Now you can get rid of the restrictions on the types of businesses and, and trades that you're allowed to go into. They can pursue commerce and other things. They they will not be burdened with special taxes. That's big in Prussia. I told you before, you know, Frederick with all that junk. They have to fill the other obligations, which means same tax burden and they, don't ha- they do not have to pay for Christian ceremonial services. Anyway, what can I tell you? By the standards of Prussia, which is pretty low, this was a, a, a giant uh, step forward. Um, and the P- German Jews to list, or not only to this day, for a long time. So, oh, 1812, uh, Like they made a big deal out of it. Uh, the, the Prussian Jews all over, over Simcha. And uh, now they've become patriotic and all the rest of it. What can I tell you? It was only yielded under duress. And it was not like a dawn of an enlightened new day. It's not like Frederick William III said, oh, now that we've been defeated Napoleon, I see the light, and we've done everything wrong until now. Let's do it. It's like, I told you before, how, much, uh, how many teaspoons of this castor I'll do I have to drink? And he didn't put any parliament in. He just put the old estates modified in a different way. You know, the nobles and the clergy and the this, you know, the, the burghers. The real direction going to the civil servants, that's really the effect of the civilian reforms of Hardenberg and Stein that they really put the government, most of it, under trained civil servants, which means that at least the people making the choices will have college education. That's the best you can make. And we all know that's no guarantee of something, but it's better than the old system where any ex-soldier was put by the government just in charge of some town, whether he knew what he was doing or not. So there's no democratic tradition in Prussia, as there was in France, and it wasn't really good for the Jews, as we'll see, but it was an upgrade in the old sense, let's go to the next one, of Christian, go back, yeah, of Christian Wilhelm Doe. Remember in the time of Moses Mendelssohn, he said, let's get a little bit of a civil improvement for the Jews. Not civil rights, God forbid, but a burglarische Verbesserung, a civil improvement. That you got. So notice, what was hot news in 1786, finally became law in 1812 in Prussia, under the pressure of having to fix the country up in order to take Napoleon Some uh, hopefully, in some other time. Then there's the big Austrian Empire next, next door to Prussia, right? Which is ruled by this guy for 45, 43 years, um, Francis I, Franz I, who was one of the great losers of all time. I mean, battles. Uh, he fought Napoleon, I guess, 50 times, and they lost like 49. you know? And uh, the best they could say is, I'm, I'm serious about it, the best they could say is, in 1809, when we had the Battle of Aspern-Essling. we gave him a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> Archduke Charles. If you're, if you're a war nut, you know, you know, these kind of things. It was, you know, he gave Napoleon a bloody nose until Napoleon probably beat him. And that's what it is. So uh, this is Habsburg, the House of Austria. They've always been historically a lot of Jews there, relatively speaking, and always full of Catholic, uh, powerful discriminations against them. And this guy was an extreme right-winger. So uh, it's funny. He lost all the battles, but, uh, you know, there's statues of him. In other words, he was a popular loser. Every time he came back from losing a battle, the people all cheered. It's it's funny, it's a, it's it's a very Austrian, you know, very Viennese. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, we there there many paintings about that and all the rest. But uh, his policy is uh, the reverse of the French Revolution: no emancipation, total opposition to anything coming from the French Revolution. Marie Antoinette was his aunt, right? Uh, even he puts back the corvee; he, he's going the other direction. The peasants are not only not liberated from the sta- from, from the countryside; they got to go back to doing slave labor once a week or something like that for 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 the lords, you know. In other words, French Revolution knew um, in Austria the reaction, which is the reverse of revolution. Revolution is going this way; the reaction goes that way. The reaction is like really in under Franz I. That's a sexy thing. He makes it you know you're really cool if you're extreme right wing reactionary. Um, the reactionary emperor is as popular. It's very popular among the people. It's funny. The Austrian people in and Moravia, at that particular time were scared to death of the, of the French violence that I showed you before. And they thought that's the worst of anything. And they're all very Catholic because they're brainwashed by the priests. All the schools were under control of the Catholic Church. So you really were living in an environment in which you viewed anything that's going on in France, including freedom, as something very horrible. And in Austria, you get the opposite of what you think. That's why that song you heard before... The, what we know is alles is really that was written <laughs> slower This is this is the this is the anthem of wait a second we'll hold this stop a <laughs> Wait a second this God preserve the Emperor Francis. No it's not about Germany. It's about the Emperor of Austria. It was written by Haydn <laughs> okay? And it's all it's not patriotic. It's dynastic. You understand? Keep them strong and all the rest. It's the whole entire opposite of nationalism. France and the French Revolution have nationalism. Austria, we have dynasticism. You understand? Uh, you, you, well you can, I don't know if you know you're German, but you can listen to the thing. Kaiser, unser Our good Kaiser friends.. Kaiser let him be great as a leader and a, and a general. This was so popular at that time; it's ridiculous. Okay, that's enough. The uh, who's who's the big composer at that time? Beethoven. In Vienna, in the, in the first decade eighteen hundreds. Okay, this is I am telling you, it's not what you think. Beethoven; it started out being sympathetic to the French Revolution, but living in Vienna, it changed. You see, and so uh, this is the atmosphere. That's not good for the Jews. What I mean by that is, if it's extreme right-wing reaction, you don't want any change in the situation for the Jews, correct? I they do it in France. That's that's the wrong word to say. Okay, and the Emperor Franz, he uh, flipped into a super dictator, and he set up a police state with police spying on everybody all the time, and they like freaked out. I mean, there were many jokes about, it, but they weren't funny. And this re- the following story really happened. He went to the doctor, uh, who was his physician, and after the checkup, the doctor says, you have a sound constitution. He says, listen, you've been my doctor for 20 years, so I'm not going to hear it. but if I hear the word constitution again, <laughs> you're going to jail. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? A, there, there, that's the kind of atmosphere was going on over there. Uh, Jacobinism, which means Frenchism, or liberalism of any kind, is fought by the secret police. No letters can come in the country to super censored. Uh, no articles can be in the paper without the secret police saying, okay, everything's super censored. No books. Okay, that's what you're, that's in Austria and Hungary and Bohemia and Galicia. Just get over it, okay? And there's not only that, but uh, first of all, by the way, he has full cooperation in the Catholic Church, agreed? So the Catholic priest is also a spy because the Catholic priest doesn't want to happen in the Austrian Empire, what happened in France. So anybody in the neighborhood it looks like, they tell the police. I just want you to understand that system works. Okay, And, you know, in the Confession, you're not supposed to tell what you heard in the Confession, uh, not if it's political. <laughs> you understand? Uh, I'm just trying to show you the environment over there. And you have the full cooperation of the aristocrats. So anybody on the countryside who says, you know, my peasants are acting funny, in come the police. They, uh, they're, 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 that's the way it went over there. Uh, as far as the Jewish masses are concerned, he wouldn't even allow factories in Vienna. Because if you have factories, you have workers, you have workers, you have the proletariat, I don't need that junk. Right? I want a sparsely populated, you know, capital city. They really took this seriously. Um, as far as the Jews are concerned, you have the bureaucratic absolutist state, as I always call it. Which means the emperor is in charge, but you've got to run it through the bureaucrats. Can't do everything. And so the bureaucrats are really the ones who make all the decisions most of the time. And what is the policy always of the European bureaucratic absolute state towards Yiddish God? They're against it. You want, if possible, weaken Judaism as much as possible with the hope of converting them, which worked a fair amount of times. If you can't convert them, at least un-Jew them, you know, yeah. make them look a lot less Hasidic, as we would say today, and things like that. So you have to do the job carefully. In, in Galicia, which is a province of the Austrian Empire, battle Hasidism. The emperor brings in all these Maskilic um, Jews who've been Muslim guys, if I can use that word, enlightened in Bohemia 20 years earlier. And he says, set up schools in Galicia where they have the Jewish masses, this in Poland part, and make all the parents send their kids to these schools to get brainwashed from, to use Baltimore to turn, you know, so from, turn it from T.I. to Betafilla, let's say, at, at at its most left wing. But that's, uh, that was a muskilling school um, system. Now, in Galicia, by the way, here's the famous book on subject, Hasidism and the Enlightenment, uh, of Habsburg regime by Raphael Mahler, he did all the homework, the golden oldie from Britain many years ago. He had access to the Austrian police, secret police records, the famous historian at the University of Haifa. And uh, this is where the Hasidim learned uh, how to play dirty pool because you got to. So all the books were censored. They, 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 they published it uh, you know secretly. And you smuggle across smuggling with the smuggling becomes a high art. And you got to know who to bribe and all the rest of it because that's, uh, you, the state is against you. And, and, and this worked until 1806, or 1807, when the Hasidim figured out how to game the system, and they went to the Austrian authorities and said, I guess, why are you trying to make everybody not from them, to become French revolutionaries, you know, to become communists or something like that, keep them uh, dumb and religious, right? And also, oh, it's a good, man, and they fired all the uh, school teachers, because they thought they might make them too uh, French revolutionary type. You get it? In other words, with that kind of a uh, uh, regime, all you have to say is, this, this will be dangerous, you know, you make this guy a liberal, he might be a liberal liberal. Oh, no, I don't want that, you know. And that's set a Hasin and the system. So it's a crazy world. This is all happening during Napoleon's time. Uh, and yet, even though he hates the Jews, and he did, and he persecutes the Jews, by that I mean he kept the old laws. Uh, you can't get married in Bohemia Moravia. Like, like I told you before, only one person in the family. All these other kind of nutty things. You have to pay extra taxes. Bal Karach uh, the doofus finances of the regime, but they got involved in one losing war after another, and they never were financially capable. They had three consecutive bankruptcies: 1810, 1811, 1812 uh, Think about that. I mean, <laughs> don't tell that to Trump. He said we had three three consecutive bankruptcies. Um, where do you get the money, even to, you know, to to, to 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 pay the the the, the lighting, let alone the army? They forced the regime to allow a Jewish financial elite to emerge in Vienna, whose salons sparkle. So if you're in the t- time of the Emperor Francis I, you have a small, tiny group of Jewish zillionaires who the husband is off doing uh, business all day long, but the wife has a secular education, not musculic, French, German, and they have uh, you know, what they call the intellectual salons, which we don't have anymore. You know, people get together Wednesday afternoon, Thursday evening for hours and hours, and you talk high-class stuff, right? High-class stuff. And, uh, you know, the literature, art, music, this and that and the other. It, it, you don't talk politics in Austria, unless you say the emperor's right, the emperor's right, the emperor's right. Uh, but you do all kind of other business. And so you have the irony that you find in Austria, which is the big shots know Jews, but they only know Rothschild and people like that, Arnstein. You get it? They They know... A tiny layer. All the other Jews are at the bottom, and the rich people don't really. Maybe they saw it doesn't pay. They don't really try to intervene to make things better for the other ones. But even Rothschild could not buy a house. He had to rent a hotel. He took over a hotel, and that's where he lived in the hotel. But he rented the hotel. You could not buy it. You see And the secret police is finding him all the time. Like, what are you afraid Rothschild is going to do? And you know, he's on your side. Yeah, this, this is Austria. Okay, this Austria rules Hungary. And Bohemia, and it's a bigger Hungary, it's like today Romania, and, and Galicia, and part of Ukraine. This is what you ha- had with over there. Now, the emperor himself, Francis I, was really mediocre. He, of him, it could truly be said, some people are born that way, some attain it, and some have mediocrity thrust upon them. There's no question about it. He's the, he's the uh, epitome of that. And so, uh, after he lost war number 11 or something against, I'm serious, if you know you're, you know a little bit of military history, you know that Napoleon beat him in 1797 and forced them to make peace. And then when he came back from Egypt, they got another war. he beat him in Marengo, and they had to go again, and then in 1804, 1805, they had the Austerlitz, and then they had the Wagram, and then you know, it was one defeat after another. So uh, he said, I need somebody smart in charge of the foreign policy. And so that's when he appoints the famous Count Metternich, right, who was not Austrian, but he was a smart cookie. And uh, he said, oh, I guess, you join my uh, team, and you'll be foreign minister, you know. And uh, that's what happened. And for the next 40 years, ran the show. Now, the emperor had tight control, but the emperor was the first one to say, I'm not smart in this stuff, and he is. You understand? I'm now, he didn't always give away, but usually he did. He saw he's a, a, a lot smarter. And uh, therefore, the result is that outside of French-controlled territory, I'm, I'm telling you all this to show you Napoleon is half empty glass, but it's also half full. Even though I said all this bad stuff about Poland the other day, but compared to the other countries, the legal situation with the Jews was a million times better in France. And France, at that time, ruled half of Europe. Meaning the French had annexed Holland and Belgium, uh, most of Italy. The French uh, annexed the, the Rhineland, and a uh, whole big chunks of ter- Switzerland was part of France. So it was a whole big chunk of territory were in France. If you're Jewish, you had to be living there. At least you had the benefit. Of the civil rights, even though you had the uh, anti-Yiddish guy business. Outside of French uh, controlled territory, the Jews, besides a few millionaires, get no civil rights at all, except a little bit in Prussia, partially, like I told you. The rulers were not interested in imitating Napoleon and his Jewish civil rights policies. They, Im- they wouldn't imitate his military policies. How does he always win the battles? They wouldn't imitate his tax policies, because how does he raise so much money? You know, How does he draft the soldiers so successfully? That kind of stuff they're interested in. But not in the – and how do you free the the peasants from the grievous burdens the peasants have been under? That they were interested in imitating in some places, but not the stuff with the Jews. Okay, meanwhile, what happened to Napoleon? Well, in 1812, I mean, he had his role. In 1812, he invaded Russia. Remember, that's where he got creamed. Uh, I think we all know the story of Napoleon's retreat from Russia where his army was wiped out in the winter, right? I assume everybody knows that. It's war and peace, right? So uh, he made his big mistake there. So his army was wiped out. He, he had 600,000 men he took in with him. That's a lot of people where I come from. 600,000 men. And he came back with, you know, uh, probably 16,000 something. I don't know. Those tiny numbers. Uh, at that point, all the beaten foes said, you know, like the dogs, now we can, if we all attack them at the same time, we can take them down. And this is 1813, 1814. All the beaten foes combined against him. And it was too much even for him because he lost his army, and he had this famous Battle of Leipzig, which is very famous for all the, the Germans, I mean the Austrians and the Prussians, and the Russians, and the Swedes, they all ganged up one gigantic army against them, and he gave him run for the money, but they beat him, they beat him bad, And uh, from then on, he was on the major defensive. Uh, he never was able to, to recover that. He had to go back to France, and then they invaded France. This is the War of 1814. In 1840, the Allies invaded, okay, and he was overwhelmed by superior superior forces invading from all directions. That was a smart policy they did. You go here, you go here. He can't be everywhere at once. And the generals, besides Napoleon, we can beat. That was called the Schwarzenberg plan, the Trochenberg plan, I mean. He says the other generals we can beat. Him you can't beat. So you hear what I'm saying? It's like uh, dogs. Have you ever watched these uh, uh, you know, animal movies, right, where you see a bunch of these uh, lion cubs, you know, they go after an animal and want to bite here and want to bite here and want to bite there? And eventually, they take it down, even though the big animal could take any one of those little ones down. So that's what happened with the uh, famous campaign of eighteen fourteen. So Napoleon fought brilliantly, but he couldn't be everywhere at once. And so they overwhelmed him. That's what happened. So he went down. The Allied armies occupied Paris. They invaded, had a lot of battles, and eventually they got there. Napoleon had to advocate abdicate. Whoa! So he had a roll from, you know, eighteen hundred or a little earlier to eighteen fourteen. That was it. Now what? If he's gone, now what? The Allied armies demand the return of the Bourbon dynasty. Okay, The revolution overthrew the king. Now we want to, We tell the French you want to take the king back. Now the old king, Louis XVI, had no kids. Um, he had a son, but he missed, died mysteriously. So the next in line, oldest brother. right, Oldest surviving brother. Louis will come in as Louis XVIII. They call this legitimacy or restoration. He was 59 years old and I'm fat. Uh, very unimpressive. This is famous about, you know. So uh, he's not coming in riding on a charger, you know what I mean? Let's put it this way. It's quite a difference. But if you're, you, you know, Napoleon had his pluses and his minuses, but he was an impressive guy. Get it? When Napoleon came in on a parade, he an impressive guy, especially when he brought about 10,000 captured flags and cannon and this kind of business. You know, the guy had something there, okay? Uh, the Duke of Wellington said, his hat, he's no gentleman, but on the field of battle, Napoleon's hat is worth 50,000 men. Right? And then you got this. <laughs> you know. So, but the Allies said he's the, he's the one that comes in after the next king in the line of succession. He doesn't have any children either way. The French governmental authorities, not Napoleon, were willing to agree. They said otherwise the Allies will stay here and maybe they'll gobble up the country and divide it among themselves. This way, if we give him a king that they agree to, they'll put out, pull out of France. And the Allies tell the new king, he's been waiting 25 years for this moment. But he was always outside of France where it's safe, you know. Uh, They tell the new king, do not make the mistake your brother made. Uh, Be a constitutional monarch, okay? We don't have to go through all this again. (laughs) It's taken us a lot of time to get rid of Napoleon and all the other stuff. So don't go too far to the right. Now, this is funny. Metternich and all the right-wingers are going to tell him that. But he said, France is France, and, you know, "Don't, don't, don't push it. The new king gives a grants a constitution, a very conservative constitution, which means 1% of the people can vote. Or 2% of the people, you know. If you make this much money, and you own this much land, and you're a college graduate, and your uncle is a duke of something, you know, that's how they used to write the laws. And, uh, uh, look, he's 59 years old. He's conservative, but he's not stupid. He said, I don't want to have to resume my travels. That's his famous line. He finally got to Paris, got to the palace, you know, Let's let there be peace, as they say. Uh, now, Napoleon came back for 100 days, a very famous, but it was a blip. Uh, that's not a, the Waterloo business, so we didn't even have to count that. You know? He was in and out. France is now back to the Bourbon dynasty. So after all the revolution, and all the guillotines, and all this other junk, eh, back to square one. It was clear that the Bourbon, at least to most intelligent people, including that king, not this guy, the king before him, it was clear to most of them, you could not literally undo the revolution. Do you understand why? So many people out there had made money on the revolution. Where'd you get your house? Where'd you get your farm? Who canceled that debt you used to owe 30 years ago? There's too much personal stake people have, financially and otherwise, in the changes of the revolution that come in. Where, 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 where'd you get the land to, to double your farm? Well, I took it from the church. <laughs> but there's a million people like that. So if you say everybody's got to get back, you're you, you alienating a million people. You get what I'm saying? So they kind of had to do a de facto recognition of the situation. They couldn't press a reset button. They, were, they wanted to. And the king's brother wanted to press the reset button. He became the next king that caused a mess, Charles X. But, because you can't. But the fat guy said, let things alone. Like I said before, it's enough. We got back. That itself is a miracle. You know, let sleeping dogs lie and and move on, move on. So, they accepted him, although he's fat and unimpressive. Louis XVIII offers the French two very precious assets: first of all, peace. France had been at war for twenty-five years. I don't care if you won most of the battles, which they did. So they have a glorious past with a lot of graves. How many brothers have not come home? How many sons have not come home, and so forth? Yeah, it was. And 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 the ones that came home, how many were crippled? You know, I'll say it again. Napoleon won most of the battles. It's if, you're, if you're into a military history buff and you want your glory, the Arch of Triumph, which is, that, yeah, you got that. But you know the old line, what price glory, okay? And what'd you get from it? France, by the time it's all over, went back to the same borders. So what was the, what was the point? Now we get peace. How do you get peace? Metternich, once Napoleon is over, and they did this, he says, let's all the leaders of Europe, all the kings and queens and would-be's come to Vienna, where I live. And we'll have a meeting, Congress, Congress of Vienna, from November to June, November eighteen fourteen, June eighteen fifteen, and all the leaders get together. There's Metternich, and you know there's Talleyrand, and you know there's Castlereagh, and so on and so forth. You know all this is Prussia. All the all the guys are there. Every prince who says I want to get a Stückelkark over here, you know, he's going to cover there because somebody else will take it from him. And the Pope wants his land back. You know how, how do you how do you arrange that? And they're all ruthless cutthroats. It's Europe, you know. So how do you work it? But Metternich said, we've got to work it out. Right? What, are we going to go to war again? We've done enough of that. Europe had gone 25 years of of straight war. Okay? 25 years. Everybody was bankrupt. There were thousands of dead. Genug You understand? The, he, he, he intuited the moment correctly. Metternich did. And he said right away, France has to be welcomed back into the club. We can't gobble up France and take away land from them and all the rest of it. Uh Talleyrand was the foreign minister under Napoleon and under the king and, the, and before Napoleon, he's one of those uh, slime balls, and uh, No, he was famous for that. But he said, I guess, he represented France and he should be in our meeting. You know why? And listen to what I'm saying because this is a big chachma on the part of Metternich which a lot of statesmen don't have. If you want a deal that will last, everybody has to have a stake in it. If there's a winner and a loser, then all, automatically that loser is going to be planning the next war. True or not? True or not? So a real statesmanship consists of working out a deal in which you gain and I gain. Has to be. Uh, Bismarck was not that smart. He insisted on keeping al sas after the '80s War, and then he provoked the First World War and the Second World War. You understand? If you play, Napoleon was not that smart. Napoleon couldn't help go for zero-sum game. That's just who he was. You understand? He had that in his blood. Uh, many statesmen are like that today. When we think about the Arab-Israeli uh, struggle, you know, it's, 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 it's a tricky business. If there ever be a peace, it's going to have to be something for both parties. The only problem is the Arabs don't want it. Right? Don't want it. But if, uh, but if there was, it'd have to be some kind of win-win situation. It has to be. Uh, so Metternich understood this, and he brought in France. They said France will be one of the allied powers now. Uh, when Napoleon did was when they were under Napoleon. Now Napoleon's gone, so now it's a different France. And he said, basically, let's go to the next one. Look at this. If we stick together... If the king of Prussia, the emperor of Austria, and Russia stick together, there'll be no wars and nobody can make us do anything. So it's like three thieves in the room. But it's, it's a chachma. As long as we agree, you know, if there's three mafia heads. The problem in the movies is each one wants to knock off the other. But if they were smart, I don't know enough about that. He said, if they were smart, they said, I guess, you keep your million, I'll keep my million, they keep million, and nobody will mess with anybody else. As long as we do that, well, you know, we, we can live, we can whistle uh, Dixie, you know, for a hundred years, and that is what happened, because the three empires, the Russian Empire, the Austrian Empire, and the Prussian German Empire, it was peace for 100 years, from 1815 to 1915, 1814, 1914, uh, because they grasped that uh, intuitive business. By the time you get to 1914, stupidity was back in the case, and as you all know, what they all wipe each other out because they shot the Archduke in in, in, in Serbia. You know, in Sarajevo in 1940, like, whoa. And, and you know what happened. And We all know what happened. They all took each other down, didn't they? By the time the First World War was over, Tsar Russia was wiped out, Austria was wiped out, and Germany as a government was wiped out. So imagine it was a lot smarter. That's what I'm trying to tell you. He was a sneaky guy. He was a cynical guy. But he said like this, Sneaky and cynical are just names you call me. If I can come up with a way that there's no more wars, then I'm right. You understand? You see, it's a dirty politics the mothers and the fathers out there will bless my name. They don't care about the sneaky side of it and the bribe and the intrigue. They'll bless my name because their husbands and the sons don't go to war. There's a peace. Peace is like worth anything. That's his uh, way of thinking, okay uh, After a lot of horse trading, you can just imagine, a new map of Europe emerges, so this becomes the new Europe in which France is back to its old borders. after all the Napoleon Wars, it was a waste of time because they got back the old borders. Many said, take away Alsace-Lorraine. He said, no, let it, leave them something. They shouldn't feel, um, what's the right word, uh, left out, you know, uh, cheated. And so France will be part of the... And then you have the Austrian Empire and Prussia. Prussia got a lot of extra land over there, right? I mean, they got the Rhineland. Uh, they, they, like, doubled in size. Russia got all of Poland, except for this. All of Poland. And uh, in other words, there were a lot of winners. And Italy was divided among a bunch, of seven or eight different states. Because the Italians, they weren't a country anyway, and the Pope, you have to give back the Pope his land, and so the heck with them. That's momish what they said. That was a mistake on part, in but that part, but, that, but that's what he said. Uh, so now you have a brand new Europe, so to speak, based on the old Europe. And France, if you're a Jew, or if you're living in France, now you have peace and prosperity and acceptance of one of the great powers. Louis Eighteenth, can say, let's go to the next one. He said, now the old kings had wars. The new king can say, uh, uh, what do you call it? We're just part of Europe now, and we're part of the Metternich system. And, you know, France won't take anything away from Germany. Germany won't take anything from France. And as long as we all agree to, uh, you know, divvy up the spoils, I won't allow liberals to criticize Germany. You won't allow German liberals to criticize France. You know, we'll keep a lid on on, on the uh, internet, as they say, and everybody will be happy. In other words, I'll be a king, and you'll be a king, and everything will go great. So he offered him peace, and he offered, also offered him economic prosperity. Because they didn't reset the button. They didn't go back to the old system where the nobles, you know what I mean, like the tail two cities, owned the peasants and, and, and squeeze them, and uh, the tolls that you have to pass every time you, you go through somebody's uh, property. They took away the old stupid things that the revolution had gotten rid of. They left alone. They didn't restore it. So that made everybody uh, feel good because it would be a bourgeois economy, as we call today a capitalist economy. Uh, now... It wasn't good if you're in the lower class, but it was for the middle class, it was a triumph. okay? So the French Revolution resulted, contrary to what many people think, not in democracy and liberty, but the triumph of the middle class. That's what happened. Triumph of the middle class, which you can call in this country, generally speaking, a Republican voter, typically, or at least the old days. I'm not I'm talking about the rich people. I'm talking about the shopkeeper. Uh, the guy owns a gas station. The person who employs a few people uh, makes a living, you know? <laughs> provides the stuff, has a store, as a salesman, you know, that, that, those kind of people all across the country. The regular farmer, there's a millions, okay? Now, um, King Louis was determined not to make the same mistake his brothers did and we're not getting a big national debt again. Because that's what undid the brother, right? Took him down. Uh, that was, uh, that, that's what took this guy down. And it makes sense. But how do you balance the budget and all the rest of it? He needs the help of the big banks, obviously. Because it's all a matter of the bond market and all kind of stuff. Which means, if you're in 1816, you need the help of this guy. Let's go the other way, right? The, the, the James Rothschild had just moved to Paris two years before, and within a short time, he built up the biggest bank. And he's in tight with the king, and uh, he's advising him how to how to invest his own money. He's always helping him, giving him ideas. And he wasn't there was a fool. There was a whole bunch of these Jewish bankers, not only Jews, I mean, I know, you know, it wasn't like that, but he was the most, obviously, you can imagine, he was the most important. James Rothschild, the Zichron Yaakov, if you ever go there. His son was Edmund Rothschild, so they named Yaakov after him. From, I would not say he was. Okay? And he didn't get married till late in life, and there's an expression in Yiddish, he lived like a millionaire in Paris. Well, he was a millionaire in Paris, you know? So, uh, uh, that's, who he, that, that's who he was. But I'll tell you one thing, just being who he is means that if you're the king, it's not necessary to, to, to pass any anti-Semitic laws, is it? Do, do you see my point? There's no incentive. Why get this guy and guys like that angry? I'm like, what, do, what do you gain? No need to bother the Jews. They're not a problem. Why get Rothschild angry? Let them, so by 1818, if you recall from last time I spoke to you, Napoleon had set up a commission. There was a report in 10 years where the Jews in Alsace and some other places, maybe we should yank their civil rights. Remember, he said maybe it was a mistake. The French Revolution went a little bit too far for the Jewish Jews. So I went through I went a, a, a full study of the case in 10 years. And then sent me, if Napoleon would have been in power, in my personal opinion, I think he would have yanked the civil rights. Because that's, that's who he was. But Napoleon's not in power. He's gone. It's a feto. And uh, get, no. And he said like this. He says, well, you know, I should what, go and stick it to the Jews in Alsace and get Rothschild angry. He went, hey, let it go, let it go. So the report was never filed, as they say over here. Or better yet, the report was given to the king, and, you know what I mean, <laughs> put in, in the file. <laughs> okay, so nothing was ever done with it. And uh, as a result, uh, that's how the Jews retained, retained their rights, uh, thanks to the restoration of the Bourbons. <laughs> it's a funny story. The French Revolution gave them their civil liberties in 1790, 1791, and by the time the story's all over, it never was yanked, even though a serious consideration was given to pulling it. But Napoleon wasn't around by the time he came to deal with the matter. Louis XVIII wasn't. He wasn't thinking about that kind of business at all. So the Jews kept their rights. And uh, till this day, France remains the only country, or the, fir- the first country, that formally gave the Jews complete and total citizenship. Um, and they never pulled it, even though there were many times where many people in France wanted to pull it. And that's a big issue of French politics later in the 1800s. Many of you are familiar with the Dreyfus Affair, which takes a play, place in the, against the background of that, but it never actually happened, except I'm not totally right. When they had Vichy France under the Nazis, a lot of French were in favor of that. They represented those groups, obviously, who felt like Napoleon, and there was a big mistake to give the Jews the civil rights. Now, they went all the way, and they became accomplices of Hitler, as we know. But I'm just telling you, you do have that, what should I say, that dark genie in the, in the French bottle. But Misa in the 1800s and until the Second World War, it never was done. On the other hand, in terms of Yiddishkeit, um, much was done. I'm talking about assimilation. Because thousands of Jews, under the new rules, flocked to Paris. Why do you want to live in a small town in Alsace, you know, with uh, 10 Jewish families and 20 Christian families? You go to Paris or Lyon or one of those places, and um, hmm, once you go over there, leaving the small towns of Alsace, the process of urbanization does its disintegrating work. You know, I've said many times, Alsace is a perfect example. You used to live in Dixweiler. Dixweiler was 15 Jewish families. Well, where were you yesterday for chakras? What's, what's the characteristic of a small community? Everybody knows everything about everybody. Peyton Place, right? So where were, so where were you for chakras? You're sick. How many days can you be sick? You, you, you get it? You don't have a small community has that stifling. It can be nurturing, you know, if you have an elderly parent That's where you want them to live. Agree? Because if they don't show up at 9 o'clock at the store, people from the store will come and knock on the house. Where where, where is it? People care about you. Not like in the urban center, where you don't know the the person living next door to your apartment, and you don't want to know. It might be, you know what I mean, uh, Ted Bundy or something like that, right? You don't want to have nothing to do with them. In a small town, everybody knows everything. It's not possible to have a secret. And from the Catholic point of view, from the Protestant point of view, and from the traditional point of view, Jewish point of view, the butcher seller "I guess I haven't, I haven't seen your wife at the butcher shop. You know, there's only one kosher butcher. There's only ten customers. What's going on? It can even get to the point where somebody said, I guess they said, you know, lady I'm seeing the mikvah. I mean, how are people, you talking about? There's no privacy. Now you moved to Paris. You move to Marseille. You moved to to, to to Lyon. Uh, one of those cities, right? Uh, you know, Bordeaux. Uh, where were you for for, for I went to another show." Well, Where's the butcher? I went to one in the other, Iron uh, Dismont. You know what I mean? See, you, you get it? In other words, the urbanization, if nothing else, allows for anonymity if that's what you wish. And anonymity means you're no longer shackled by the co- coercive, the social pressures that are just endemic to the small community. Happened to the Catholics, but if you're France, it's a big Catholic country and there's plenty of Catholic stuff in those <clears throat> cities. If you're Jewish, there's not. The Jews have never lived in the cities before now. And they come there. And Yiddish-wise, it goes down the tubes. There is among many uh, what uh, Professor Berkowitz in his famous book on the Jews of early 19th century France, what he calls the flight from traditional identity. Because you move over here, you're the only Jew living in this apartment building, everybody else goes here on Sunday, you feel like an oddball, and after a while you go along. To young Jews of France, during this time, moving to new situations, being Jewish is experienced as being a loser, which is devastating for the young we're not talking about people going to yeshivas or anything, none of that exists. So you are talking about traditionalism. In the environment I just told you, you experience Yiddishkeit as a negative, as a loser operation. You know, the girls won't look at you, the guys won't look at you, this one, like that. Plus, it's the restoration of the Bourbons, the return of an invigorated Roman Catholicism under the new regime as a reaction to the deism of the revolution and the persecution of the church during the 1790s, now leads to an uncomfortable cultural atmosphere for Judaism. Everything is Catholic all over the place. We in this country don't know this. America is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country, thank God. And the Protestants, by the religion, do not wear their religion on the sleeves. That's the definition of Protestant. It's interiority. You understand? Uh, Martin Luther, Calvin, all these guys, it's, it's, it's what's in here that counts. They're opposed. If you live in a Catholic country, anybody here from South America whatever, when it's the Saints' Day, when it's the Corpus Christi Day in Quebec, they're in the streets, it's big processions, it's on the billboards, it's all over the place. It's not comfortable if you're Jewish living there. They don't bother you. I'm not talking about talking bother you. But it's, you understand? In Baltimore, Maryland, at least as far as I know, I've lived here all my life, you don't really see it. To be perfectly honest, I grew up in Forest Park, where there was a million churches all over the place. Although when I was growing up, you kind of filtered them out. I didn't notice them. That's the truth. You know, there you didn't notice them. My children have grown up in this neighborhood in Park Heights, Upper Park Heights, and Greenspring. Do you know churches? It's just, it's just interesting. You know, I don't know, if any of you are from the South or such places, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're in Jew, moving the pants, there's no shuls, and there's a million churches and a million Catholic and this not that all over the place. And so the result is, is a, it's just a, a kind of a tidal wave of social pressure. If you're a Jew in France, all the leading thinkers and writers are going to tell you how bad your religion are and your habits are. How incomparably inferior are to Catholicism, because that's what's going on after the fall of Napoleon. This is going to be a permanent feature of French Catholicism for the next 130 years. It will mean that for many Frenchmen, the emancipation of the Jews was a mistake and should be reversed, if you're a strong Catholic. And it leads to a lot of Jewish personal tragedies. You see the famous or sad case, this guy, Emmanuel Deutsch, was a big Talmud Chacham and the chief rabbi of France after Zinzheim, after the Yad David, in the late 1810s and 1820s. He's a big Talmud Chacham. His son and son-in-law had learned with him in the yeshiva. How did he pick this guy as a son-in-law? You know, he was the best guy in yeshiva or something like that. So they knew how to learn all the rest of it. As soon as they leave home and move to Paris, he converts to Roman Catholic and then he brings him along. So the guy's son and son-in-law, a very famous case. He was a screwball, so years later he betrayed a duchess who was trying to bring back a Catholic restoration in France, the Duchess of Barry, and then the Catholic hated him more. and then he he converted back to Judaism or something something like that. It was a weirdo. This guy became the uh, head librarian for the Pope in in the Vatican. You get it? So I'll say it again. It's not one of these cases where if he only knew Yiddish God, he wouldn't have done it. These guys came from rabbinic families, and they had, as we would call today, yeshiva education and all the rest of it, so you say, how can somebody go for Catholic? I want to tell you something. It's really weird. If you told me he went secular, I can get it. Right? You know, you read science, you read history, you said everything I learned was baloney. If you become a deist, an atheist, I get that. Catholic? You know, in other words, I'm switching from the superstitious Jewish religion, and the dumb one, and I'm embracing, what? <laughs> a profoundly rational, modernistic, you, know, you get what I'm saying? No, no, I'm, I'm trying to show you, that's how powerful the social pressure is. is it, how can it be an intellectual decision? Hey, you, you want to know something? France is full of people like that. And just at the top of my head, Henri Bergson, who's a Litvak, converts to Roman Catholic in France. Uh, uh, Evans and Novak, one of those two, the one who's Jewish, okay. y- y- converted to Catholic in America, you know, 30 years ago or something like that. I'll tell you again, if you tell me the guy doesn't believe anymore... We became a secular, that I understand. okay. But if you tell me somebody switches from Orthodox Jew to Muslim or to Catholic, it's a strange business. Because what you're really doing is embracing an even more profoundly irrational set of beliefs. This was the famous argument of Moses Mendelssohn when he was challenged back in the 1770s by Lavater, the Swiss Protestant clergyman, when Lavater said, why don't you come out of the closet? You're so logical, so rational. Why don't you become a Christian? Are the other Jews threatening you? We'll help you. And Mendel said it like this. If you're Jewish, it's a story. You've got to believe all this stuff in the Old Testament. But if you're Christian, on top of that, you got to believe all the stories in the New Testament. So which religion is more irrational? You get it? None of those arguments mean anything. Look, the father was a chief rabbi of Paris. These guys, they could have had a career in Jewish. So this is an example of us to understand how powerful the cultural pressure is in the wake of the restoration and the revolution. You find this in Muslim countries also. People embrace Islam and they say, you know, you're switching Judaism for Islam, you know, how does that work mentally? It's not a mental part, is it? It's emotional as a social. It's emotional as a social. So this is uh, sad. So it turns out that taking the average Jew out of cultural insularity and exposing him to the gale force winds of national European culture proved to be a bad idea. So can the Jews handle freedom? It's not so simple. Sans Raphael Hirsch, let's go to the next one, who lives in this time. He's born in 1808. He grew up in the 1820s and 30s. He lives in this time. Ravel Hirsch, he says you have to have a kehoah. You cannot be religious now unless you move to Baltimore. Or Muncie or Atlanta. you know what I'm saying, right? You can't be once upon a time, you could be religious and be the only family in West Virginia somewhere. It don't work. Why doesn't it work? Why does it work? There's so much pressure. If everybody else in your town is, you know, a member of a, a, a you know, a, a Jerry Falwell thing, you're going to do it also, regardless of whether it makes sense or doesn't. It's going to happen. You know, so you don't want to be the oddball out. You you can't help but crave that social acceptance unless you make your own bubble, right? And Hirsch, I hope to talk about this on Shabbos night um, this coming week. Hirsch's uh, attitude towards the uh, Kehillah, its its vital importance. So what's shot with the revolution? It's a problematic legacy, but who's to blame right <laughs> you know it's, the, the fault is ourselves right? Nobody made these people convert right it's not the it's not the spanish Inquisition. these rabbis' sons and all the rest of them, they, they you know the jews have to to blame themselves it was it wasn't wasn't uh an effective system the way we raised our children uh once upon a time now uh, in France. To finish the story, Louis XVIII died in 1824. He was succeeded by his brother, who was an extremist, as I told you, who wanted to press the reset button. Naturally, his extremism of Charles X, who said, I want to give all the land back to the church, I want to give all the land from the peasants, took from the nobles back to the nobles, all that kind of stuff led to a revolution. He was overthrown in 1830 by a new regime, Louis Philippe, who was a cousin of the Bourbons, and he said like this, I am a liberal, I am a bu- bu- on ro- ro- bourgeois, bourgeois, on the bourgeois king, uh, Even though here he has a uniform, most of the time he walked around with an umbrella. That was a symbol I'm a member of the middle class, right? Even as the king of France. And now it's going to be a distinctly capitalist, middle class, uh, you know, Robert Taft type of government. That's what they wanted. This was the uh, official ideology of the bourgeoisie. In fact, uh, Guizot is very famous for saying, Here's what I tell the people of France Enrichez-vous, get rich, right? Is it capitalism? Don't complain, you know, you don't have enough money, get money. You want to vote, you know, put, get 50 grand and put a bed there, you can vote. Until then, just shut up. So the golden age of capitalism if you want to regard it as a golden age. Or you can say it's a dark age of capitalism if you're a socialist, because it means unfettered exploitation of the workers, right? With no rights whatsoever, this is something I'll have to do next time. Uh, now, that means the triumph in France in 1830, this is called the Revolution of 1830, but it was fairly nonviolent. Fairly nonviolent. Uh, the triumph of uh, of uh, liberalism. I don't mean democratic. It's the liberals. The liberals do not. there's the middle class. They don't want the masses to have votes out there. That's ridiculous. The masses don't have any money. Of course they'll vote to double the social security, cripple the welfare, and all the rest of it. God forbid that the public should have a right to vote. Only the property owners, and the taxpayers, and the people who do stuff should have the right to vote. Two hundred thousand people in France could vote out of uh, about 30 million, two, two, 200,000. That's the, that's what they call democracy and liberalism in those days. But I want to tell you something. 19th century liberalism, among other things, was committed to capitalism and was also committed to uh, religious liberty. And the state, under Louis Philippe, now finally does what they should have done. We'll pay off the debts of the Kihilos, which is still unpaid from the French Revolution, and we will start paying the rabbis. In other words, if we support the Catholic Church and we support the Protestant Church, then doggone it, where's it going to support the Jewish church? So that's a liberal, I'm talking, like not, not liberal today, liberal then, 19th century liberal, okay? Let us just halt for a minute. I'll spend another five minutes on this. I'll never get a chance to finish. Um, with France and turn our attention to Germany, because here events of a quite different nature uh, took over. Here the metternich system prevailed, and all politics was suppressed. I told, like in Austria, you know, all the newspapers are just about the latest play the newest uh, dance, and all this kind of stuff, don't talk about the politics. Don't even bring it up. Because that way there can be no fights and no wars, and that's the best. Get it? Uh, you know, what do you need people stupidly talking to JCC uh, shower room about, uh, Trump versus the You know, uh, that doesn't, doesn't affect the politics. Just shut up and let the guys who know what they're doing do it. That's Metternich, okay? So culture becomes politics, and then we have over here the origins of German racist nationalism. Because in the wars against Napoleon, he beat them bad like the Prussians. And then in 1812-13, they, they came back at him. In the context of a gigantic wave of Germanic patriotism, which turned into later, not at that time, into Nazism. Here's, wait, hold on for a second. Hold on, hold for a second. Hold on for a second. Hold on. hold on. Hold on. This is Hitler's most, listen, this is Hitler's most famous movie, which he came out with in 1945, Colbert. It's a very famous classic. He, and Goebbels and Hitler spent they were big believers in movies as propaganda things and he did, I hate to say it, he did very good history movies of course with a Hitlerist uh, twist, obviously in Kohlberg the German people, not the king the whole movie about the German people in 1813 say, we're going to unite all Germans not Jews all Germans of all classes and they go singing patriotic this really happened, to join the army and fight against Napoleon Take a look at this, it's in Prussia, look at all the students are marching and the people, these are regular citizens, the masses. That's enough. You get the idea. The, wait a second. This really happened. This, this movie's fairly accurate. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a, a good movie. Uh, he, he just twisted it. You know, it's a genius the way he gobbles. You know, he knew how to do it. He knew how to do it. But the point's like this. The fight against Napoleon round two, not the first round when he beat them, drew out Germanism. I don't care if you're Prussian, from Württemberg, from Bavaria, from Schmecklenburg and Mecklenburg and Klecklenburg. There really were places like that. And the Grand Duchy of Oldenburg, eh, German, right? We call forth from the people and they all come out of all ranks and they beat Napoleon. Now, it's not as simple as that, but, but, but to them it was. And when the war was over, there had been unleashed a giant emotional thing of, of, of Germanioism, as they called it. Not go for the Jews because you're not German. You get it? You're not part of this. Jews did serve in this army they won 't show you in this picture. It eighteen twelve and afterwards, and therefore they could serve but and there 's a famous painting from Oppenheimer the Jewish soldier returns back from the battlefield in the in the ghetto of Frankfurt it 's a classic picture maybe i 'll show you next time uh, the jew the jew you know from the Jewish soldier come back from the Napoleon Wars, yeah, but they didn 't know about that and they 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 't good with it. There was the German Christians because only Christian goes back a thousand years with the right blood and so Um, what's the result? Um, The poets and the others say being German is a matter of blood. Uh, The victory of Napoleon, they beat him, enshrines the nationalist, racist ideas among the masses. And this a cultural atmosphere, obviously, does not go for the Jews. And I'm 100 years before Hitler. Jews are expelled from the Burschenschaften. In other words, in the universities, when they have the student associations, which are very khashev, no Jews. Only for Germans. I'm a German, I'm a citizen. The king said I'm a citizen. You're a citizen, but you're not German. Get it? The French said, "If it's a state, then you're a citizen." The German said, "State is one thing. German is, you have it or you don't. You don't have. Look at the nose. You don't have it." That—that's that's what I talked. Okay? Um, Jews now get expelled from there. The King Frederick William now starts clarifying the 1812 emancipation laws. He remember he said like this: "I'll review them. So it should be that you can become a lawyer." You can become a lawyer, and you can become a law professor. Edward Gans, number one in Harvard Law School, the University of Berlin Law School, number one. Okay? He had the grades, all the rest of it. The king tells him, 1819, as long as you're Jewish, you're not getting it. Get over it. I, we're, we're, not, we're just not going to do it. And so he converts. It's a very famous story. And he became a very eminent Prussian jurist. You know, he's a famous name in German law. But you're not going to do anything. Ah, what about the law of 1812? I'm rethinking it. Right? We're... we're What's the right word? Fine-tune. We're fine-tuning it. You understand? The Germanomania goes wild with torchlight parades, book burning, poems praising Germany, poems proclaiming hatred for anything that does not conform. This is the fullest manifestation of the romantic reaction against 18th century rationalism. The 18th century was the Enlightenment, in which we go by what makes sense and what can be defended in an argument. But look what that led to. The French Revolution, the defeat of Germany, the crushing of us by Napoleon. All that. I don't want anything to do, they said, with the, ni- with the 1700s and the rationalist business. Here's where the real reality is. That's called romanticism, right? The big romantic reaction. This is the real MS. It's subjective not re- uh, uh, and not objective. And it's a pushback against the liberalism, which in Z- they see it militates against the German masses. In the Jewish context they think like this if this rationalism liberalism requires giving the hated jews full rights then the jews can if they have the ability and they do take over the country that doesn't make any sense they'll dominate the economy they'll displace the college grads in academia like they see now the asian students get the good grades they say the jewish students get the good grades they'll take a role of jobs in the civil service and journalism etc should i get hurt because of some stupid liberal idea who came up with that an idea has to work for the public. This is what's going on in Germany now with Angela Merkel. Why are you taking a million uh, Muslims? Oh, you have to help their... Head. But then you're going to destroy Germany. You get it? So, basically, if, if, if I'm bad at football, I don't want to play football. What's wrong with football? I'm not good at it. If that becomes the criterion, whether I get a job or get ahead in life, I'm never going to so I don't want football. I'll go for baseball. So if liberalism, this is why little by little the right wings and the fascists take him back in Europe. Because the liberal ideas say you've got to take in all the refugees. They're going to take over the country. So then it's not a good idea. So I don't want it anymore. Okay? This is how the, they experienced the Jews, even though it's no comparison. But, they, but to them it was. okay. They were anti-Semitic. The universities, therefore, are not left-wing. They're hotbeds for alt-right culture, as we would call it today. That's, that's a, you know. By the way, we have many universities. You follow the news. They throw out the fraternities because of racism and sexism and all the time. Don't you read that every week or two? You know this uh, uh, fraternity gets anti-Semitic. This one's anti-black. This one, this. So you, you have such possibi- possibilities in, in the United States. Although the, the authorities aren't there, there the authorities who are on that side. Some, stu- some students in this atmosphere get all fired up and they start assassinating public officials. That's all Metternich and the kings eat. Oh my God! They crack down. They go wild. They clamp down with what they call the Carlsbad degrees But they got the and Carls- Karlsbad in the famous place. And here's the press muzzled, <laughs> right? And here's the uh, student terrorists being beheaded. Okay, They said, we're going to come down on this. The press is now heavily censored. So the German masses are now in a foul mood. But you can't go after the authorities because they got the guns. And anyway, they can kick you out of college. And they can deny you a job. So you can't. <laughs> it's not safe to go after them. Uh, so who do you go after? And to throw in the last piece of the shown in 1816 was Al Gore year. You, I don't know if you know this. This is the year of a year without a summer. They think that something happened in, in, in uh, Indonesia where one of these uh, volcanoes went off and then, you know, blocked the sun and all that. It, it was a big famine, 1816, all across the north. In America, USA, in Europe, all the rest of it. So it's 1816, everybody's in a foul mood. They're going with the German mania junk. The food is not there. And then you run into the mafkiyei sha'arim, which means speculators in food, because that's what's going to happen. When food is rare, prices go up, and people are making money on it. Who is making money on it? Lots of people. Some of them were Jewish and many of them were not Jewish. No, I see the Jew. So if you're the German peasant, whatever, who's running the world, well, listen, you laughing at me? Didn't the guy make a speech the other day in Washington, D.C. that the Jew's in charge of the weather? <laughs> what are you laughing for? Uh, 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 in other words, I wish we could laugh. It's not funny. The guy meant it. Right? The guy meant it. I'm just trying to tell you, if you're in the receiving end of violence is not funny. okay? And so what's the result? So it was Al Gore year. So the answer is I can't go over to government, I can't go after the university, I can't go after the Jews. And as a result, in the summer and fall of 1819, five years after Napoleon fell, in Germany, now it's a peace and quiet in Germany, a huge wave of pogroms uh, breaks out all across Germany, which people killed, properties destroyed, uh... It's like Spain in 1391, meaning nobody started. It started in one place and it spread spontaneously from town to town. It's called the Hep Hep Riots. Okay? Here's a famous thing look, he's hitting him over the head and killing him. And the, and the lady is uh, stabbing uh, the guy with a fork. You understand? With a pitchfork. I mean, it was bad news. There was a wave of pogroms in Germany, which has a history of nonviolence on the part of the masses. Uh, Germany's where everybody's supposed to listen to the, to the rules. Not in 1819. Germany was the wrong place to be. And the Jews were unarmed i was again. The Jews are unarmed. They didn't have no, like, you know, no Jew at 22. They didn't have, like, over here, people have a uh, Jewish gun club is unheard of. It's the German Jews. You trust in the police. You trust in the law and order. And therefore, a, a giant wave of pogrom swept the country. And they all say hep-hep, which means, hooray, huzzah, death to the Jews and get out of this country while you can. And it's killing and burning destruction of property and the police are complicit because they don't want a mess. Now, by the way, the Jews should have gotten out of there, right? I mean, if... If they would interpret this right, they'd all get out of Germany 1890. That would have been a good move. But who knew, you know. Um, the only good thing is like this. These uh, lousy anal kings, uh, law and order people. So they say, oh, it's the riots? It's not Hitler. They send in the army. The Prussian army goes in everywhere. The Austrian army, they'll go into the towns. They say, okay, no riots. Not because we like the Jews, no riots. And when some of these towns don't listen, <laughs> the Prussians line up cannon in the street. And they just make my day. You know, they will do it. And that's the end of that. The uncontrollable crowds, always uncontrollable. <laughs> so it went from late August, September, October. That's how it went when it lasted. Um, the only So let's put it this way. God bless the Prussian army. Doesn't it say in of us? You should pray for the Mishbala Shomalchus. Because the Mishbala Morov, not for the fact that people are afraid of the government, Ishes Re'e Chaim blow people will swallow each other alive. There you have it. Okay? So I'm trying to tell you, the, the German Jews see these guys say, thank God. Right there, the ones who suppressed the violence—they're a little bit late, but they suppressed the violence. The only good German gentleman I know of was this guy, the Grand Duke of uh, Baden, who, as soon as they started having riots in his city, he immediately left the palace and he took up residence in the house of a Jew. Yeah. Says so a personal message, and that worked. But you know, that's that's one. <laughs> that's one. Okay, now. Um, if only the Jews would have left Germany then. Metternich can tell Rothschild and the other guys, I'd like to help the Jews, but listen, if we give them civil rights, the public go nuts. Can't do it. You know, the atmosphere is such. If you give them the civil rights, they'll go crazy. I can't control them. And so, emancipation does not happen in Germany. The Jews are profoundly disappointed. And during the next 20 years, two decades, the Jews in the German states, other than Austria, are feeling depressed. They did not abstain civil rights. We used to have them, especially if you, you live in Western Germany in Napoleon's time, but now they're under Prussia and they got their rights yanked from them. You can't make a Thomas Jefferson argument if the people hold like Voltaire that the Jews have different DNA. That's the problem. The democratic arguments don't work. Jews are different. For normal humans, you're right. All men are created equal, but the Jews are not created equal. They're different, like Voltaire. They have a different DNA. It's Mamish Hitler, 100 years before Hitler. That's what it is. And so it's not possible to gain a sympathetic hearing from the broad German public because the lower classes in Germany know the Jew is a creditor who's going to foreclose on them. The middle classes know him as someone who's competing for the same white-collar jobs, same white-collar jobs, and the businessman knows the Jew is a competitor in business. They don't like him. A German says, I don't want to socialize with you. I don't want to see you guys around. You know, I'm not shooting you. I'm not putting you back in the ghetto. So just shut the heck up. Get out of my way. Live with somewhere else and do business somewhere else i don 't want to see you right It turns me off to see you i 'm not hurting you, but get a, i don 't have to put up with you that 's how everybody feels in germany so what 's the answer to that it 's hard to come up with a good answer to that. How did Jews react to this? I think this is well leave off and we we'll, we 'll we'll jump into that next time. <laughs>